I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need, and get 10% off with the code all caps FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com and use the code, all caps, FRIEND10, to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. What's up, all you anti-heroes out there? Doc Askins, bringing you another one of these Q5 podcast episodes where I ask five of my favorite questions to some of the coolest people in the world. What I've got lined up for you today is a... New friend of mine, Dr. Graham Priest, a distinguished professor of philosophy at the Center of the City University of New York Graduate Center. He's a regular visitor at the University of Melbourne, where he's the Boyce Gibson Professor of Philosophy, and he also lectures at the University of St. Andrews. His background is in, I think it's accurate to call it meta-philosophy rather than just regular old-fashioned philosophy. And he's got an awful lot to teach in the areas of non-classical logics, modal logics, but I also understand he's got a background in karate, so we're going to dig into a whole bunch of things here. Graham, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast, my friend. Thanks, Docs. Pleasure to be here. So let's get everything rocking and rolling with question number one. What's your story? Yeah, look, I don't really know how to answer that question because I don't know what sort of story we're talking about, but you know, I was born longer ago than I care to remember in um, South London, England. I was a working class kid. And in a sense, I've never lost my working class origins, even though I've become very bourgeois in a sense. So at school, I fell in love with mathematics and I went to university to study mathematics. In, in the UK, you essentially only study one subject at university. And I studied mathematics. And that was in, in Cambridge. And I got a bit bored with mathematics, but I, I, I discovered philosophy and um, fell in love with the subject. And most of my intellectual professional life since then has been to do with philosophy. So I did a doctorate in mathematical logic because of the mathematical connection. I decided I wanted to be an academic. It's, it's kind of a boring profession, but it's, it gives you a lot of flexibility with your time and the ability to get involved in all kinds of intellectual enterprises that engage you. So there's a lot of freedom, and I've always appreciated that. The first permanent job I was offered was in Australia. So we moved, we being me and my family, moved to Australia. Um, we did. We thought we'd be back in the UK soon, but we never did. So effectively, we'd, we'd emigrated. And I spent most of my working life in Australia. And it's a country I love very much. It's got its problems, but it's... A country I feel very happy in. I moved around universities in Australia and about 10 years ago I was offered a job in New York 
And I thought, well, it's about time for a change. So I moved here. And in due course, you know, when I've had enough, I'm going to go back and live in Australia again. While out my remaining years, you know, feeding the cat, listening to your podcast, you know, <laughs> writing poetry. <laughs> oh, you write poetry. Yeah. Have you published yeah. any of your poetry? No, no, no. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you know, I started life working in fairly technical areas of philosophy, but over the years I've got my, my interests are broadened. So nowadays I work on a lot of different areas, meta philosophy, meta metaphysics, whatever you want to call it, history of philosophy, political philosophy, Asian philosophy. So you know, there's, there's not much in philosophy that doesn't interest me nowadays. I shall do that until I feel that I've had enough, and then I'll go and do something else. Is that enough? That's wonderful. Yeah, I appreciate the trajectory of your story. Is it okay if I kind of double-click on some things in the story along the way? Of course. Yeah. Tell me about the turn from your working-class upbringing to the decision to go into the ivory tower of academics as a career. Yeah. Well, look, when I grew up in... I grew up in post-Second World War South London, a working-class area, and tertiary education was really not on the agenda for people of my class. My parents both left school at 14, and that's all the education they had. I don't think anyone in my neighbourhood had ever been to university before, but there was a fairly radical Labour government in Britain in, after the Second World War, and they introduced lots of opportunities for working-class people. So they made it possible for kids to go to university. Fees were paid. Living allowances were paid. Also, the, the government did things like introduce the national health system, in work on public transport, public utilities. It was a pretty radical government, even by British standards. And I benefited from those reforms because I went to a state school, but it, it turned out to be a fairly academic state school. We were encouraged to sort of apply for university entrance, which I did, and I got in. And as I say, I, while I was there, I, I, I fell in love with philosophy, and I decided that it would be kind of cool to think about it some more. So there aren't many jobs for professional philosophers except in the university. So I wanted a university job, and fortunately I, I got one. And, you know, academics are pretty bourgeois by and large, and I am too. So in a sense, I moved into the bourgeoisie, a petty bourgeoisie, middle middle class. <laughs> Not um, a bourgeois bohemian, just the petty bourgeoisie. No, to, to be a bourgeois bohemian, you've got to have quite a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I hear. But, you know, I've, I've, the British class system is something else. And if you don't grow up there, you don't understand it properly. If you visit the place, you can't see it. It's it's a phenomenon that works from the inside. I've seen both sides of that. Power structures are interesting because if you're on the upper side of a power structure, you don't really see the underside. And this works in most power structures I know. Class, religion, race, gender. And if you're on the top side, you don't, you don't get what the experiences of the people on the bottom side are really like. But I've seen the bottom side of the class power structure. I, don't, I haven't seen the bottom side of the race power structure or the gender power structure because I'm a kind of white male. But 
having seen the, the underside of one power structure, it makes me much more able to understand what people on the underside of those power structures, how they experience things. It translates to a degree. There's analogies in yeah, all of I the mean, hierarchies. They're all hierarchies, right? So you can understand what it's like at the bottom or the top if you've been to some of those places. In, in a certain sense, you know, I've, I've never been discriminated against on the grounds of race or gender and so on. So I, I, I'll never have that exact experience. But I know what it's like to be on the underside of a power structure. And many of the things are, are similar. You know, the, the mechanisms that are used to enforce power structures, both legal, ideological, phenomenological, you know, I, the, these work in similar ways in most top-down power structures. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. You know, my introduction to your work was logic, a short introduction, which was also my introduction to logic in undergrad. But I've read several of your other works and following some of the trajectory of your publications and now seeing where, you know, your most recent works have been. I I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the books that you've written, particularly maybe starting with... I found Doubt Truth to be a Liar to be a very interesting book, given the you know Shakespearean quote that's the title, but also just the content of that book is incredibly rich. Would you be willing to discuss some of what's found between the covers of that book? Yeah, sure. I mean, you're asking a really dangerous question, because if, if you ask an academic to talk about their work, <laughs> they can go on forever. Yeah, I'm let not me scared. This, let me keep this as succinct as I can. So a little bit about the history of Western philosophy. There's this principle that's pretty orthodox ever since Aristotle called the principle of non-contradiction, which says yeah, there's no way that contradictions can be true. So a contradiction is something like it's raining and it's not raining. Trump is corrupt. He's not corrupt. The Earth has nine planets. The Earth doesn't have nine planets. You know, doesn't sound terribly exciting, but it's been the principle that no, no such things can be true has been high orthodox in the history of Western philosophy, with a few major exceptions. But stemming from work in technical working logic, which I won't bore you with, around the 1970s, a number of philosophers challenged this principle. And it was a particularly Australian heresy at one time. The, the epicenter of this was was me and uh, an old friend who's now dead, Richard Sylvan, in Australia. And this sort of outraged the philosophical community because we were just taking on a real, you know, entrenched piece of dogma. And we got an enormous amount of pushback. People thought it was crazy. If I remember correctly, he he called his approach nunism. Is that? Nunism is another of his views, which I have subsequently come to endorse, but let, let's leave that aside for the moment. We found it useful to have a neologism for a true contradiction. So something of the form, you know, it's raining and it's not raining. Trump is corrupt and he's not corrupt. I mean, I'm not suggesting that those contradictions are true, but dialethia is the view that some things like that are true. And we pushed dialethism, as I said, we got a lot of pushback from the community. But slowly, you know, we've sort of worn away at the profession. And most people still think it's crazy, but at least it's kind of recognized as a well-established heresy nowadays, shall we say. Okay, so... Can, can I interject just briefly? Yeah, please. 
Yeah, just to point out that neologism means new word. It's a new word that you're uh, using in a new context. Just so, you know, for uh, the working class audience perspective, that uh, you know, dialetheism and some of these new terms are are valuable because you can kind of define what you mean by them when you get to pick a new word for something. So what you're doing is kind of defining something in a new way with a new word, even though you're picking up on some things that you're describing as heresies historically in philosophy, correct? Yeah. I mean, we, we looked we looked for a word that we could recycle, as it were, you know, a standard word, give a new philosophical meaning to it. We couldn't find one we liked. So we actually made this one up. It wasn't a word before that. Okay, so I wrote this book, In Contradiction, which sort of was, was really the first modern advocacy of dialetheism. And Doubt Truth to Be a Liar, which you mentioned, was the second book. And because the principle of non-contradiction has been so orthodox in the history of Western philosophy, if you think that some contradictions can be true, it actually ricochets through so many different areas of philosophy, epistemology, you know, philosophy of language, metaphysics, maybe ethics. And Doubt Truth to Be Alive was a kind of exploration of the interaction between dialetheism and this whole bunch of other issues. So, as you say, it goes through a lot of topics. So you've got the sort of the liar paradox at the heart of some of those discussions, if I remember correctly. Is that something you could elaborate on for us? Yeah, sure. Okay, there's a whole bunch of paradoxes in philosophy called paradoxes of self-reference because the paradox involves some way of referring to something that you're doing or involves itself, right? The liar paradox is the oldest paradox of this kind that we know. It was invented or discovered by an ancient Greek philosopher called Eubulides about the 4th, 5th century BCE. And it's kind of easy to explain. So let, let me explain. Suppose I say to you, what I'm now saying to you, this very sentence, is not true. Okay, so I've just said it. Now I ask you, well, that, what I just said, was that true or not? Well, if it was true, well, it says it's not true. So if it's true, it's not true. And if it's not true, well, that's what it says, so it's true. So if it's true, it's not true. If it's not true, it's true. So it seems to be both true and false. That's the paradox. This paradox has been discussed by logicians for 2,000 years, and strangely enough, there is still no consensus about what to say about it. Still, logicians disagree with each other. So the dialethist says, yeah, yeah, there's the, it's true and false. It's what it seems to be. No, that's not quite the end of the story, but it's a, it's a very simple move. Now, you might think this sounds all a bit like a logician's party game. Who gives a shit about the lie sentence, right? And you, <laughs> right. you, if, you, if you meet this for the first time, you could be forgiven for thinking that. Okay, but, and this is a big but, paradox of self-reference, of which there are many, many known now, turned up around the beginning of the 20th century in a, the centre of mathematics. So they seem to be at the core of really central bits of mathematics well, you know, you might have many views about mathematics, but you can't deny it's important. It's no logician's party game. And so studies of self-reference have dominated a lot of an area of mathematics called the foundations of mathematics in the last hundred years. So this is, it turned out to be absolutely central to 
the nature of mathematics to computing to some of the most profound results in mathematics in the 20th century, like Gödel's incompleteness theorems. Okay, I won't, you know, I'll tell you about those if you like, but just take more over it. They're really important. And so this thing that appears like a logician's party trick is actually really important because it's, it's deeply embedded in, in the core of mathematics, computing, and lots of other things that are central to so many intellectual enterprises. Strategic navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50%. These guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60% on their income taxes. Click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you. If you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes, then just ignore everything I just said. It's my understanding, too, that there are examples of the liar paradox found in, you know, ancient scriptures from all over the world as well. For example, in Paul's letter, Titus 1.12, he says, even the Cretan scholars say all Cretans are liars. So if you have even a, a commitment to following a particular religious tradition and a deeply held faith, you have to make sense out of the liar paradox in some way, shape, or form if you're going to be on that path. I know that it's called something else in the Buddhist tradition. Maybe you're familiar with uh, the Tetralemma. Uh, okay, I think it's Let, called. Let's, let's, let's talk about Paul for a minute. Yeah. So, of course, he, he's writing, he's trying to spread the Christian word across the Greek Empire. And he's, he's obviously been talking to people who know some Greek philosophy, and he's heard of the liar paradox, right? He misunderstands it, because when he's writing, I forget which epistle it's in, but he's talking about you shouldn't trust Cretans. That obviously, the people he's sending out to Crete had some bad experiences, Right. So he's writing and he's saying, you know, don't trust these bloody Cretans. You know, even they themselves say that we're liars, right? Oh, okay. So, all right, what's the liar paradox got to do with Crete? Well, there's a version of it where a Cretan says all Cretans are liars. Okay, and this is this is another version. So that's what Paul's heard of. But he thinks, he, he, he mistakes it as someone casting moral aspersions on Cretans not as a bit of philosophical argumentation. Yeah, he sort of stumbles into it that way, quoting them in their own way, right? Well, he, he's, he's heard of this bit of paradox, and he takes it that some actual Cretan really said this, which I'm sure they didn't. <laughs> so laying Paul to the side, are you familiar then with the, the tetralemma, I think it's called, where the liar paradox shows up with truth gaps and gluts in... Uh, yeah. Buddhist wisdom traditions. So let's talk a little bit about that. As I say, the principle of non-contradiction has been highly orthodox in Western philosophy. In the various Eastern philosophies, of which there are many, some people endorse it and some people don't. But there is, in early Buddhism, so we're talking about the first thousand years, from about 500 BC to 500, the common era, there's a very well-used and established principle of logic metaphysics called the Chaturashkoti. It's a Sanskrit word, and it means four corners, four points, four ways, roughly. And what it is is that if I, I tell you something, doesn't matter what it is, um, there are four possibilities. It can be true, false, both, or neither. 
That's the Chattish Koti, right? And you'll notice that the third Koti is both, both true and false. And if something is both true and false, it's a true contradiction. So that sort of framework admits the possibility of true contradictions. Um, and there's nothing really similar in the West uh, for at least 1,500, maybe 2,000 years after Aristotle. Who's a sort of rough contemporary of the Buddha? A little bit later. So if you read and many Buddhist texts, they do tend to play with contradiction and often apparently endorse contradictions. And they can appeal to the Chattrach Koti, the, the third Koti, the both option of the four, to kind of say this is okay. All right, they, as far as I know, they've never heard of the liar paradox. I don't think it occurs any in any Buddhist texts. So when they do tend to appeal to this kind of move, it's, it's to do with other things. Can you give an example of what appeals they might make rather than to the liar paradox to have a truth gap or a truth glut? Yeah. Well, look, there's a fairly obvious one. Let me put it in a more broad context before I tell you exactly what it is. Central to so much of philosophy are issues to do with exploring the limits of our language, our thought. I mean, are there limits to what we can conceptualize, describe? And this, this is a vein of philosophy or a philosophical topic that runs through a lot of Western and Eastern philosophy. So you find it in, in the West, you find it in, in, in Kant, in Wittgenstein, in Heidegger, in Plato, in, you know, it's just, just so many of the great philosophers engaged in this project. And in the West, you find it, sorry, in the East, you find it, you find it in Buddhism, you find it in Shankara, and uh, Hindu, you find it in uh, aspects of Taoism, because, hey, you know, there's a world out there, and language and concepts are our construction. Could it be possible that, you know, there are things out there we just can't get a handle on with what we can do? This is a really deep philosophical problem. Okay, you find it in Eastern Western philosophy, as I've said, and unsurprisingly, it occurs in Buddhist philosophy. So there are many different kinds of Buddhist philosophy. It's not a, a not a unitary thing, but a standard Buddhist view is that there are kind of two realities or two aspects of reality. There's the kind of ordinary reality, conventional reality that we're familiar with. You know, tables and chairs, podcasts, jobs. You know, uh, the world we live in. But then there is a, the world as it really is, beyond our conceptualization. Okay, we deal with the world, we conceptualize in various ways, but hey, there's a real world out there, which is what it is we conceptualize. What is it like? Hey, well, you can't say, because anything you say about it is part of our conceptualization. So it's ineffable. But of course, I've just been speaking about it. I've been speaking about ineffable. <laughs> I've been speaking about what you can't speak about. There's the contradiction, right? And this contradiction the is things whereof one cannot for... speak, thereof one must be silent, right? Exactly. And so you get this exact. You, you've quoted the last verse of the Tractatus, a very important book by Wittgenstein, late teens, early twenties of twentieth century, and he's gr grappling with exactly this problem. He tells you that how language works, how it hooks onto reality, and then he realizes that the things he's been saying literally can't be said according to his own account. And so he he ends up with this famous saying, say, hey, my book is completely meaningless. 
you've got to admire the, the chutzpah of the guy, right? And then he... <laughs> right. You get all the way to the end and he says, you wasted your time reading me. You get a little angry about it, huh? But what he says is, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You know what I mean? Say no more, mate. A <laughs> little Monty Python you, reference for everybody there. I love it. <laughs> once you get what I'm talking about, you can see what I mean. And he yeah, says, yeah. my book is like a ladder. You've got to climb to the top, then you kick it away, and you're at the top. Okay. This is a fantastic book ending. It's my favorite ending of any philosophy book. But it's dealing oh, with yeah, this absolutely. problem. You know, how do you describe the fact that there are things you can't talk about in talking about them? And as, as I understand it, he retired then from being an academic for a period of time after writing the Tractatus and planned on not writing anything else ever, became a gardener, just kind of did whatever the hell he wanted for a while, and then came back around and wrote Philosophical Investigations, but that wasn't published until he wanted it published posthumously, if I remember correctly. Is that yeah. accurate? What do you think was going on there with, with W.? <laughs> Okay, he's a fascinating character. You know what cats are like, don't you? I mean, cats always go their own way. You can't do anything with them, right? Yeah, if, yeah. If Wittgenstein were a non-human animal, he'd have been a cat. Because <laughs> he just <laughs> went off in his own direction, you know. Um, yeah, it's either so sleeping he, in the sun or out murdering something and eating it and nothing in between, right? Okay, I don't think Wittgenstein ever committed murder. But, you know... He was a World War One prisoner of war at one point, so I, oh, I don't know the, all the details there. Well, he was Austrian. He came and studied in Cambridge in the UK. He got involved with the philosophers there. He went back and he fought in the trenches on the side of Austria in the First World War. And in fact, he pretty much composed the Tractatus in the Trenches. Yeah, exactly. Interesting guy. Okay. So, so and I'll, that's not murder, technically speaking. However, you know, we draw some arbitrary lines around some arbitrary well, actions from time to time. Yeah. I mean, if he was busy writing the Tractatus, he wasn't shooting at people, I suppose. <laughs> that's, but that's anyway, fair, okay. Uh, so after the, second anyway. World, after, the, after the First World War, he comes back. He writes the Tractatus. He's working in Vienna. It's published, and he sort of thinks that he's solved all the problems of philosophy. So he decides to right. do something else. So he this guy climbs out of the trenches and says, "I've solved all the problems. Read my book," and then disappears. If I understand it right, and then yeah. Well, he lived. He reappears later in, on uh, with a second coming. He was living in Austria. He was a school teacher. Didn't go down very well in that role. He was involved with some philosophers, the Vienna Circle. Never mind about them, but he was he was continuing in in philosophy. But he wasn't employed as a philosopher. He was working as a school teacher or other things. But he was gradually brought to see that he hadn't solved all the problems of philosophy. There was a young British philosopher called Frank Ramsey who played a major role in this. So. Wittgenstein often didn't like talking philosophy, but Frank Ramsey visited him from Cambridge and they started talking and he came to think that there were problems with the Tractatus. So he started to engage in philosophy properly again and he came back to the UK and took a job in Cambridge and he published, he published two things in his lifetime. One was the Tractatus and one was a short article in um, a British journal I think it was Mind. No, it's so Proceedings of the Aristotelian Society. Okay, where he starts to express his doubts about the Tractatus. And so 
this sort of in, inaugurates the second part of his life, where he's lecturing in Cambridge for until his death in about 1956. And he's trying out all kinds of new ideas. He he rejects the Tractatus. So he it, he takes philosophy off in a new direction. And even though it was never he'd never published anything else in his lifetime, it had an enormous impact on philosophy in the UK, just because he was in Cambridge and Cambridge is influential. And so he was working on this book called The Philosophical Investigations when he died. He died of cancer in about 56. And some of his students sort of polished it up and published it. And as you say, it was published posthumously. But, you know, he was in Britain in the second book. He thought it's a waste of time being a philosopher. He, he actually had a very low opinion of philosophy. He actually thought that <laughs> philosophy was a waste of time. And he advised many of his students not to go into philosophy because he thought they were wasting their time. So in the Second World War, he left his position as a lecturer in, as a professor in Cambridge, and he went down to London and he worked as a porter in one of the London hospitals. So as I say, you know, he's a bit like this sort of cat who just did what he did, but he was an absolutely obsessive personality. He was obsessed with philosophy. He just thought that the way to tackle philosophy is to show it's all really a big mistake. And you know, a lot of his subsequent philosophy is on that line. Of course, you know, the fact that philosophy is all a big mistake is kind of really important philosophical thesis. So you can't <laughs> get out of this problem, right? And he knew that. <laughs> yeah, you can't escape it. What do you think of his opinion that philosophy is a mistake? I think that's wrong. It doesn't mean, but he developed lots of ideas in the process of working. But you're biased. You're a philosopher. Views. You you get your paycheck from a university graduate yeah, center, okay. right? Like <laughs> guilty as charged. <laughs> but okay, look, philosophy is really important. Let me let me tell you something. I went to a, an interview by Tom Stoppard once, the English playwright, and he said, "You know, there's a difference between philosophers and plumbers." When philosophers knock off and go down the pub, they talk about philosophy. When plumbers knock off and go down the pub, they talk about philosophy. Okay. <laughs> so think about it for a second. Now, look, the philosophical problems are things like, should you ban abortion? How should you vote next? How should I treat my kids? What's the best system for running a society? Should I be giving my money away? Okay, these are all ethical problems. And in some way, everybody deals with these issues. They might not think too hard about them, but they have views on them. They have views on the existence of God. They have views on all kinds of things, which are philosophical issues. Okay, they don't sort of engage in these with the kind of rigor that that professional philosophers do. But these are important problems in people's lives. That's what Stoppard was talking about. And so these are really important problems, and they ain't going to go away just because they're so important to people's lives. And, you know, so essentially, it's just wrong. Well, it just sounds like you're saying by virtue of being human, you will be a philosopher. It's just a question of whether you'll be a wise or a foolish one, not whether you'll do philosophy or not. Yeah, uh, well said. And there are lots of areas of philosophy which are archaic. Well, and then maybe the pub is the best place you're implying to do some of those things as well. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I was saying, you know, lots of philosophical issues are pretty arcane, but there are some philosophical issues 
which are fundamental to people's lives. And those have always driven philosophy in both the East and the West since the origins of philosophy, whenever that was. Mm-hmm. And these whenever principles are not going to go away <laughs> because they're, they're, they're part of uh, a human life. Whenever we climbed down out of the trees and started having big ideas. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure people were talking about these things before we learned to write. Yeah, I mean, these are... I mean, I've loved this conversation. We've gone kind of far afield and we're still kind of on question number one. I feel like I'm a liar to some <laughs> extent. We may not get through all five of these questions here, but I, I think it's totally worth it. Look, if, if, you, if you want to, we can break at some stage and come back and resume the conversation. I mean, I'm happy to do that rather than to sort of, you know, rush through things. Well, I mean, I have time to keep going. Yeah, okay. I, I just... Uh, I, I've, I've, yeah, look, I've, I've got to go and teach, so maybe we should think about winding up in about 15 minutes. But, you know, you might be completely bored with this conversation and too polite to tell me. If you are, that's perfectly fine. But if you want to have part two some stage down the track, that's fine too. You know, like we've just barely scratched the surface on some of your work and some of your thoughts. And I know that it's a, a lot over a long career to try to compress down into just a podcast. Maybe I could ask you one more question and uh, just about your story. And then we could see about having you back on later on to just continue the conversation if you're willing. Whatever you want to do. You know, I've read that you have a black belt in karate. I'd wonder about hearing about some of your karate journey here as just kind of my last question for this particular episode. So I practiced karate do for 25 years. And in that time, I got to be a fourth dan, fourth degree black belt. And I've trained in Japan a lot. So over the years, I learned a lot about karate. I didn't choose to do it. I started because at the time I had a, well, I have a daughter at that time who was 12, and my wife and I thought that she should learn to defend herself. So she wasn't a physical kid, and my wife said, uh, look, we'll join a karate club and I'll come along with you. So the two of them went and joined a karate club. And after a year or two, my wife said to me, why don't you join us? And I said, nah. You know, I'm not into hitting people. And she said, no, you don't understand. It's about not hitting people. That sounded really stupid to me. But she was right. So I said, okay, right. So I went along and trained. And within a month, I was hooked. I just loved the fact that it was a training of body, mind, spirit. You know, what it means to be a person. I know that sounds strange because you think karate is learned to thump people. And, you know, you do. But it's it's not. It's about it's 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 karate do. So do is the Japanese for Tao, Chinese meaning away, isn't the Tao Te Ching, right? When you're taught properly, it really is a way of being in the world, and I, I love that. As I say, I trained for twenty five years. I moved up through the ranks. I never owned a dojo, place where you train students, but I often taught. When my teacher travelled, I taught for him. I got involved in competition. I was um, an Australian referee and cutter judge. And it just played an enormous role in my life. There have been times in my life when it's held my life together. You know, when my marriage broke up, um, marriage breakups are always difficult, right? But I would just pack my gi, gi is the kind of white suit you wear, in a bag, go after the dojo every night and forget everything else. And it provided the continuity to get me through a difficult patch in my life. I don't know if there's more you want to hear about karate. There will always be more that I want to hear about karate, but 
I know that's all the time that we have for today, but I would love to have you back on the podcast to talk more about all the ways that philosophy and karate could influence our way of being in the world. As I say, look, I'll be happy to come back whenever you'd like. Um, we just, you know, email and sort out a time. Yeah, let's do that. I, I very much appreciate it. Thank you for your time, Graham. You're welcome, Ben. Cheers. Doc out. <laughs>